I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John 1. We are actually rounding out a little pit stop that we've taken and marching through the justification, sanctification, glorification sections of Romans. And the reason is, is because we came to a use of the term eternal life by Paul in a way that's very different than we see or may be accustomed to hearing it used. So I want to take a moment and, and not review too much, but give a general, two general examples so we can understand. For instance, oh, I guess I better have a mic on. If we were to look at John 3.16, Mitch, if you wouldn't mind, bring that up. Look at John 3.16. We know this, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And it's obvious from this that it's a gift, yes? Now let's be very clear about what a gift is. A gift is something that someone gives freely expecting nothing in return. In fact, if you were to receive a gift and you were trying to repay it, maybe it was unexpected, maybe it's your birthday. Can you imagine trying to repay people for your birthday gifts? Do you think those people that gave the gift and went to great personal expense in order to bless your life with that gift, do you think they'd be a little bit insulted that you tried to pay them back? It's the same way with God. So in John 3.16, we see Eternal life is a free gift. But as we're walking through the idea of know that we're sinners, know that we've sinned. Yes, I'm sorry, children's church is dismissed. Forgive me. But if we walk through this idea of understanding that we need to know that we've died to sin and we need to reckon ourselves alive to God and present the members of our body as instruments for righteous purposes so that God will use us for his glory. We then came across this verse, Romans 6.22. You don't have to turn there. I want to put it up on the screen. But here's what we see. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And remember, sanctification is the idea of being set apart. We would often associate the word with holy with it. And it says, and the outcome, eternal life. Paul uses eternal life here as a prize to be won. So you have eternal life that can be understood as a free gift at the moment you believe in Christ. It is yours. But then we also have an aspect of eternal life that is a prize of which to be earned or merited. Now let's be very, very clear. Because of God's grace, there is nothing you can do to ever lose the gift of eternal life. Never. It can never be taken from you. In fact, I'm really excited when we get to Romans 8 because Paul goes off about this, right? Nothing can separate us. Nothing. Nothing. But the Bible also speaks very much about that what your eternal life looks like in the future is determinant upon how you live today. 
We see such warnings from Jesus or encouragements, however you want to look at them as. Don't store up treasure here. Store up treasure there. Thieves will steal it here. Thieves can't get it there. Anybody see? Sometimes I get little weird news things through my phone. Anybody get weird news through your phone? How many people hate the news? A lot more hands on that one. There you go. I saw where while Pierce Morgan, depending on how you feel about that guy, while he was asleep, somebody broke into his bedroom and stole a bunch of stuff. Now, number one, that's the quietest person in the world. Okay? But all I can sit here and think is Pierce, however you say his name, Pierce, whatever. You should have been storing up treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth, because people break in and steal it. No one can take away things that are done for eternity. So when we talk about the idea of deriving our benefit as slaves of God, and the fact that it results in sanctification, our further being set apart, holiness taking place in our lives, the outcome of that is a greater quality of life. Now, obviously, whether you're talking about the gift or the prize, context determines meaning. Would you agree? Okay. We can clearly see that. So here's a question we want to answer as we're coming out of this little pit stop regarding eternal life, what it is to lose your life now, what it is to have the saving of the soul. How do you bridge from the gift to the prize? What does that look like? I want to show you some things real quick through here. I'm going to go through a series of scriptures. I'm going to make short little comments about those scriptures like you believe they're going to be short and little. And then we're really going to nail it home, okay? So take a look at 1 John 1. We're going to start in verse 1. I want you to watch this, okay? Watch what John says. John, 1 John, John, is the same as Gospel of John, John, okay? Same guy. So watch this. 1 John 1. Did I tell you guys 1 John 1? Okay, to make sure. 1 John 1. Look what he says. What was from the beginning? What we have heard... What we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of, say it church, life, grasp that. Don't let that go. Does everybody see that John is referring to something that he's actually had a personal experience with? Yes. Now we know the word of life to be what? The Lord Jesus Christ, yes? Okay, so watch this. They've seen him. They've heard it. They've seen him with their eyes. They've come into contact. They've touched him with their hands, the word of life. Verse 2, and the life was manifested. We call that incarnation. It's the idea that the almighty God, creator of all things, has actually manifested himself in human flesh, coming in the form of a child. So notice, this life has been incarnated, manifested. Watch this. And we have seen and, good word, church, what? Testify. You know what testify means? Testify is not waving your hand for glory. That's not what it is. Testify is, I've got something to say about this situation. In fact, I can't not say it. 
When I say it, it will further validate the truthfulness of that statement. When you take the stand to testify, what are you doing? You're there to tell the truth about everything that you saw and heard so that people will come to a better conclusion. So notice, we've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him, and we're going to testify. We're going to tell people about it. And notice, and proclaim to you the what? Oh gosh, that sounded like a bunch of weak-winded warriors. Come on. Eternal life. What is it? The eternal life. Does everybody see how the word of life and the eternal life are the same thing? Does everybody see this? Everybody see it? Do you see it? Do you have 2020 vision on this? Okay. Man, if you're not excited to be here, you need to get some coffee. Here we go. Because that'll help you. Notice, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Isn't that the truth? Didn't the Son leave the bosom of the Father and come to earth to be with us? In a very tangible and expressive way. Why? Because God wanted us to further know him. So now watch what happens. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have, what's the key word? Fellowship. That's God. That's John's desire under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for this book. He wants believers to have fellowship by coming into greater contact with the eternal life that has been manifested, the word of life, Jesus Christ. Now watch. That you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Christ. Don't forget that. Now watch, the fellowship is very specific. Who does John and obviously his companions, he uses us, who do they have fellowship, intimacy, a growing, thriving relationship with? The Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Keep that in your mind, okay? Now, everybody get ready. We're going to dance through the Gospel of John a little bit. Go to Gospel of John chapter 1. Because we're going to put some of these things out before you, and we're going to tie it all together. The Gospel of John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Does everybody see that the Word was with God? And not only that, but the Word was God. Everybody see it? Okay. So you put that together with the way that John was expressing himself in 1 John 1, we understand that the Word is who? Jesus Christ. Now, stick with me here. Verse 3, or I'm sorry, verse 4. In him was, what is it? Think about this. And I know I said this a long time ago, we're going through foundational framework, but this is a profound thought that Scripture wants to teach us. Before time was ever created, before anything ever came into being, there existed in perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a divine trinity that needed nothing else in order to exist, that was perfectly happy, happy existing amongst themselves, one in essence, three in persons. But there was something that they had going on between them that is absolutely 
mind-blowing. And that was the idea of forever life existed in their midst. Does that make sense? I can't figure it out, so if you do, come talk to me. But man, that's deep. That's put on your waders deep. Notice what verse 4 says. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Here's what this means. If men and women have any light in them whatsoever, it's because they have Jesus Christ. Without him, there is no light, and without him, there is darkness. This is what separates the idea of the lost and the saved, is because they have the light. They have the life. And notice this. Notice in verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Does everybody see that life is the light, and the light is the life? Does everybody see this? So Jesus has been explained so far as the word of life, the eternal life, the life having that amongst him, but it's also the light that's amongst him. Does that make sense? Okay, look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, did not overtake it, did not overcome it. Or let's say it this way, they don't get it. He's the light. But those who are lost are in darkness apart from this light. What is this light? It's Jesus Christ himself. Now, that being said, again, you're going to be like, where in the world is he going with all this? Hop with me on these lily pads. We'll be good. Turn over to John 5. Let me show you this. John chapter 5. We're going to start in 24 because it's just a darn good verse. John 5, 24, look what it says. Truly, truly, this is Jesus speaking. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death. Which tells you what the darkness is equivalent of, doesn't it? Darkness and death. You've passed out of that. You are now life. You are now light. Don't you think that it's interesting that Jesus makes the proclamation, I am the light of the world? And then you go to the Sermon on the Mount, what does he tell the disciples? You are the light of the world. How can the disciples be the light of the world and Jesus Christ be the light of the world? Anybody know? Because what? Because they have the message of Jesus Christ. I'll take it one step further, because they have Christ in them. Because anything that would be light and life in us is Jesus Christ. That's why. That's what makes this concept so profound. Now watch how this moves forward. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. That means presently in his time. When the dead, right there we're talking about the spiritually dead, not the physical dead, those who do not have life and therefore they are dead in darkness. The spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Where is the life found? The life is found in Christ. If you're a believer, guess where your location is, positionally speaking? In Christ. What does that mean you have? You have life, you have light, you have Christ. I love in Christ alone, for I am his, 
and he is mine. Everybody see that? Man, you can't break that apart. That's a relationship that is inseparable. Now keep going with me here. Turn over and look at verse 39 and 40. This is interesting because he's talking to the Jews. The Judaizers are trying to come against him. You know this if you're familiar with the Gospels. They were seeking to mount up a plan and have a reason to accuse him so that they could put him to death because they were threatened by him, even though they plainly knew who he was. They didn't want to lose power. So they'd rather kill the Messiah than humble themselves. Now watch this. He says something very profound. Watch what it says. Verse 39, you search the scriptures. What's interesting about this word search, it's often used in Greek of the idea of a bloodhound tracking down a scent. You, anybody ever had a dog get up in their ear? And at first you're like, that's annoying, but then you ask the question, what are they smelling, right? You're a little worried about it. But it's like a bloodhound tracking down a scent. You, the scriptures, okay? Like, that's gross. Calm down. You search the scriptures like a bloodhound because you think that in them you have what? Now watch what Jesus says. It is these that testify about me. You think they're found in what you know or how much you know about this book or how much you know about the Old Testament. Guess what? You can tell me everything about the Old Testament, but you missed the person of Jesus Christ, you've missed it all. You think that head knowledge is going to be a way to get ahead. You've missed it. You've missed it. Why? Because everything that the scriptures have to say point to one person, and he is the life. Look what it says here. And you are unwilling to come to me. Why? So that you may have what? Man, think about that. whole reason why people stay in darkness is because they refuse to come to Christ. Why? Because only in him is life. Everybody see how this is tying together? Yes, no. Okay, good. Stick with me here. Don't fall asleep. Turn over to chapter 6. Look at 26. Now, this is right after the feeding of the people with the fish and loaves. Look at 626, Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, which by the way, let's dispel something real quick. Seeing the signs of Jesus and believing in him because of them is enough for someone to be saved. I think that's important for us to understand because it totally goes with the purpose statement of John's gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, if you want to check that out. But these things were written that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why it was given. So the signs were enough. Notice what he's saying. You're not following after me because you saw the signs. Not for the reason why they were intended. Look what he says. But because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You don't care about the spiritual. You're all about the physical. You're all about what can I get out of this? Not the fact that redemption is standing in front of you. That's a hard-hearted place to be. Now watch this, 27. And this is interesting because this changes the way we think about eternal life in, in John's gospel. Remember, you have to use context to determine. It says here, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Let me ask you a question, church. Is he talking about the gift or the prize? He's talking about the prize. Why? Because he's talking about work that must be done. 
work that lasts, eternal work, and it develops a superior quality of life in the life to come. Notice food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. And I believe that that seal is the Holy Spirit. You can check that later. Verse 28, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Is that a works question? It's, it's a works question if for no other reason it brought up works twice, right? That's a first grade answer right there. But so how do we do the works of God so that we have food that endures to eternal life? Good question, yes. We often ask that question in various ways of the Lord. Look what he says here. Verse 29, Jesus answered, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you get busy serving him. Is that what it says? No. Notice it uses a very good word, believe. You simply believe him. Watch this. You believe in him whom he has sent. Or let me say it this way. The same faith in the same object of which we received graciously justification is the same faith in the same object by which we experience sanctification. You see, if you want to know what the bridge is between the gift of eternal life that we receive at the moment of faith and the prize of eternal life to be earned so that we have a glorious inheritance in the future, it is one thing and one thing only, and that's simply trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Christian life is anything other than that, it's wrong. If the Christ life is anything other than that, it is false. It's simply trusting Christ, well, don't I have to do this? Well, don't I have to do this? Well, what about doing this? Well, what about all these commands to do these things? Those things will never be done in a way that are pleasing to the Father if they're ever done in the flesh. In fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians 3, those things will burn up in his presence. So how do I go about doing spiritual works that are pleasing to the Father? I trust his Son. I trust his son. And Jesus leads me where I need to be. He tells me where I need to go. He opens the doors I need to walk through. And not all the time am I the most wise person about where he's taken me. But by the grace of God, he will keep working with me because God has a divine purpose in conforming us all to the image of his son. So by believing him and believing him and believing him and believing him and believing him, God starts doing his work through me and through you. Let's see another one. Skip down to verse 35. This is a good one. 635, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Sounds familiar, right? He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Let me ask you this question by way of application. Sitting here right now, in good old 2020, is Jesus your satisfier? Does he satisfy you? Or do you find yourself longing and wanting and spending? Or is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough to curb that credit card interest? 
Is Jesus enough to keep you from clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking? Because for some reason, we just can't get enough of that Internet. The Internet's the greatest legal drug we have in this world. Are you satisfied in him? Something to think about. How about this next one here? Turn over to 66. This is a really good little section here. Jesus, what we dealt with for communion, I'm the bread of life, the living bread. And then he starts to tell these people who are following him, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you're not mine. And all God's people said, ew, right? Why did Jesus get all cannibal on me all of a sudden? But of course, these are metaphors for believing, receiving him, taking him, believing him. So it freaks a whole lot of people out, and they walk away. And it's very interesting to see what happens. Look at verse 66, forgive me. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were no, or sorry, were not walking with him anymore. That's an interesting verse to ponder on for a while. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Now God loved Peter because he's got some sense in this one verse, right? Love him. He's so much like me, it's ridiculous. I cut off one of your ears, forgive me. So it says here, I'm just kidding. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, watch this. This is a great conclusion. To whom shall we go? You have the words of what? What else is going to meet the need that we have? Not just to go to heaven when we die, but to live a life of purpose and meaning worth being here for. What other option is there besides Christ? I think one of the greatest orchestrated lies that Satan has ever done in this world has convinced us that there are many options to Christ. There are not. That's a lie from Satan. In fact, I would say one of the greatest responsibilities that we have as God's children is to let people know there is no other option. In fact, Jesus said this himself, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the what? Everybody think about that. The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only one way. That's so narrow-minded. Isn't it by grace that he even provided that? Remember this, guys. Jesus was not obligated to save one single person. This is what generates the gratitude for grace. On a sinner like me, eternal life. How about this? You have the words of eternal life. Verse 69, now watch this. We have believed. Does that get you the gift? Yeah, you believe in Christ. He gives you the gift of eternal life. Watch this. And have come to know. You know what that tells me? It tells me those folks are on the way to the prize. They believed and they have the gift, but we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We're growing in our understanding of you, Jesus. We're getting more and more and more. Now, everybody see this word know. This is a very interesting word. If you're writing down, let me give it to you in the Greek so that you know it. It's G-I-N-O-S-K-O. G-I-N-O-S-K-O. Gnosko. Okay? G-I-N-O-S-K-O. You say, why in the world are we writing that down? 
Let me take you to another place. Turn to John 17. This is probably the best understanding of what the bridge is between the free gift and the prize. We can go there. It's okay, little one. Verse 3. This is eternal life. Now watch this. Can it get much plainer than this? And I think this is important. Notice that he's not defining eternal life. He's giving you the essence of it. The way you receive eternal life is by believing in Christ. The way you have an abundant life, abundance in life, and the life to come is by obeying. But watch this. How you go about obeying makes all the difference in the world. This is eternal life, that they may gnosko you, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Stop. Didn't John say that his fellowship was with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ? And we know that fellowship is intimacy. That's not establishing relationship. That's bringing you into a deeper waiting in the grace and knowledge of the Father and the Son. This word gnosko is extremely interesting. Let me show you some things really quick. Mitch, let's bring up the slide on gnosko. This has at least seven different definitions that we saw. There are many different words for knowing something in the Scriptures. It's kind of hard to see, isn't it? Is it hard to see? No, it's way plainer up here. Yay, praise God. Gnosko. Notice, number one, to arrive at a knowledge of someone or something to know, know about, make acquaintance of. Number two, acquire information through some means to learn of something or to ascertain something or to find out. Number three, to grasp the significance or meaning of something, to understand or you comprehend something. Number four, to be aware of something, to perceive it or to notice or to realize. Number five, to have sexual intercourse with, to have sex or marital relations with. Number six, to have come to the knowledge of or to come to know somebody or to know them. Number seven, to indicate that one does know or to acknowledge or to recognize. But here's what kicked it all off for me. In fact, I left this at the end for dramatic effect, but it's actually brought up at the beginning in this lexicon. So the very first thing they want you to really know about this word and how it's used. This verb is variously nuanced in context relating to familiarity acquired through, what's the word? Experience or association with a person or thing. Now stop and think about that for a second and look at verse 3 again. This is eternal life, that they may know you experientially in their lives, that they may know you by experience, that they may experience the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. How do you get from, I've heard the gospel message and recognize that my sin is personally offensive to God. Therefore, I understand that Jesus Christ has died in my place for my sins on the cross, has risen from the grave, and I believe in that. I'm convinced that that is true. I've heard the gospel. I'm responding in faith. I have a gift of eternal life. But I also have to deal with contexts where eternal life is mentioned as something to be had out in the future. How do you get from point A to point B? Here's what it is. Your life is one of experiencing God. We are in danger of becoming Baptists. Yes, I went there. And it's not because I don't like Baptists. 
They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. I were one once. In fact, if you notice on Friday, when if you get the paper, you look in the, the Portage paper, I saw all these different headings for denominations because somebody mentioned, there's nothing about our church in the paper. We need something there. And I thought, well, good grief. And I looked at all these headings. I was like, we don't fit any of these. So I had Marcia put in the heading Bible. <laughs> put us right on. You want to know what we're about? We're about God's word. That's where we are. And we're the only one, which I think is great. But anyway, that aside, you can chuckle at that later. Experiencing God. One of the greatest gripes that I have with the Baptist church is they're scared to death of the charismatics. As they sit here and they will say, well, I, we know. We know about God. We know about God. We know that. Well, did you know? Yeah, I know that. I know it. Yeah. They've got theology down pat. They think that they've got everything squared away. Sometimes we run that risk in fundamentalist Bible churches because we're so staunch on the inerrancy of the word, and we should be. But we have let it sit here. And if it doesn't move into our hearts to affect change in our lives, then guys, we're not experiencing eternal life. We're not. It's not happening. Now, it just so happens, and this is, man, I tell you, the way that God does things in my life is just insane. He'll lead me somewhere to something. Like, oh, what's that about, you know? And then all of a sudden, all this other stuff starts coming along that kind of reinforces it. I'm like, what are you doing, God? And it's always good stuff. But i got to sit here and scratch my head. What's going on? How many people have heard of the book Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby? How many people have read the book Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby? How long has it been? Long time. His gospel presentation in that book is horrendous. What he's had to say, and it's true about what it is for people to actually experience God in their life. And I found something very helpful because we weigh out the idea of what is it to know God. Do you realize that we serve a supernatural God? Yes. Do we realize that the Bible is a supernatural book? Guys, think about this. Supernatural. We've fallen into the world's criteria of naturalism that we've forgotten to be expectant of God to fulfill what he says he will do in his word. If that's how we really feel about it and we study prophecy, then we're all about the head knowledge of how it's going to work out, but we're not about the fervent anticipation of what he says to do leading up into his coming. And here's a great thing. He only gave us two things. Share the gospel, build up believers. Share the gospel, build up believers. Evangelism, discipleship, evangelism, discipleship. There is nothing else for us to do. But I tell you this, if we're not doing that, we are sorely out in left field and we're missing the boat. We need to experience God. Are you experiencing God? If I asked you right now to give me a testimony about what God is doing in your life, could you stand up and say, I can't believe what God's doing. He's doing this. How is that giving you a deeper knowledge of himself? And you might sit here and say, well, I'm very discouraged because I don't feel like that's me. Don't be discouraged because here's the great thing. Number one, the reason why you come to church is to get convicted of the word of what it's supposed to be. And when you walk out the doors, you're not supposed to live life the same. God wants to change every one of our lives. He does it to me all the time. I wish he'd quit for a little while. <gasps> I know, that's true. But sometimes, yeah, he'll hear me. <laughs> Shh, don't tell God. <laughs> That's how they did it in the garden, right? 
terrible. But there comes a point, I don't know if I'm coming or going. What is God showing you? How is God leading you into a deeper knowledge of him? You might say, well, I need something tangible in order to figure that out. Just so happens that when I started going through this book, Experiencing God, that all of a sudden, and, and I hate social media, but it pops up on a little newsfeed thing. Did you know that Blackaby Ministries is doing an online class of Experiencing God? Really? So I enrolled. And it's awesome. If for no other reason that it's driving me to his word over and over. But I also happen to lift a graphic to help us understand this. I say lift generously. I've given credit where credit's due. It's in the workbook. Mitch, let's see the graphic. God has work that he wants every one of his children to do. Ephesians 2.10 is very clear. We are his workmanship. We are his carefully crafted masterpiece. That's what the word poema means. And it's talking about the church, not individuals. It's talking about the church of God. It's a corporate situation. God has something for every one of us to do. And he wants to lead us on a path so that we are doing his works. How do we do the works of God, they asked? You believe on the one who sent him. You have faith. You trust, you trust that God's going to lead you where you need to go with it. Now, he wants to bring you to a point of obeying so that you will experience him, so that you will look back on a situation and go, good grief, I can't believe how we got here. But we know it's the hand of God that brought us here. Why? Because we step back and we say only God could have done that. We could have brought together all the brain power that we possibly wanted. We could have emptied out every one of our savings accounts and piled up money to the sky in this place. We could have took out all the advertisements on TV and billboards and tracks or whatever you want to say in the whole world. But if God is not behind it, it is all in vain. This sounds harsh, but it's something that I needed to hear. God doesn't care about doing my work. My work is inconsequential to God. God already has work prepared for every one of us to do. Now, the problem is, is that he needs to take us on a path to get there. He needs to lead us in a way where we will recognize. I wonder too often at which one of these stops we bail. Number one, he initiates a relationship with us. I've got something for Jeremy to do. So I'm going to orchestrate the circumstances in his life where he will hear the gospel and hear the gospel and hear the gospel and hear the gospel. And I love my mother to death. She never stopped praying for me. She never stopped praying for me. I caused that woman a lot of heartache. Praise God for his grace. And so I finally hear the gospel, the lights come on, reality hits. I'm going to end up resting the rest of my life in a bottle if something doesn't change. I think I told you guys this, but it still blows my mind to this day just because I remember how I felt. I took my beer money for the week and went to the Christian bookstore. Never set foot in that place in my life. Didn't blow up. And I bought an NIV student Bible. Yes, the NIV. And I came out with it thinking, man, what did I just do? I'm not drinking this weekend. 
tell you this, I drink like I'd never drank in my life. He's the one who gives living water. So God initiated that relationship in my life. Now he invites me to join him in his work. Come do what I'm doing. Come alongside me to where I'm going. Follow me where I'm leading. God wants to do that for you. Every day. All the time. There's an invitation that's graciously put forward. And then God whops you upside the head. Or he speaks. Now, am I saying that he speaks outside of the Bible? No, I'm saying he can impress upon you. He can lead you. He can convict you. He can mold you. He can move you. He can set up the circumstances in your life to say, this is clearly the path. And it is a bright neon sign like Las Vegas had never seen before. He did it with Moses in a burning bush, yes? Yeah, he got his attention real quick. He did it to Mary by sending an angel, yes? Yeah. He invades our life with a gracious invitation, and he tells us plainly what needs to be happening. He sets it up to where our spiritual eyes are developed and say, we got to do this. It's got to happen. And then what happens? There's a crisis of belief. Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me. Crisis of belief. Can I really trust God in this situation? Are we really sure? that this is what God wanted? We run the risk of doubt creeping in. Was Abraham faithful? Very much so. And what happened? Abraham had to, and here's the part that sometimes kills us. Abraham had to adjust his life and agenda to what God wanted. It was no longer about Abraham. It's no longer about Jeremy. Jeremy's wants, desires, what I think, I often want to paint his needs because I'm a hyperdramatic person. Are all getting laid down at the foot of the cross to say, God, what do you want? And he needs to reorient the things in my life. I need to adjust to him. Why? So that he can continue to work through me. It's like pruning. He begins pruning back our lives. Why? So that we will blossom even more and bring forth more fruit. And then what happens? In the midst of obedience, you look back and you say, God has been here. God has worked with me. God has made the difference. Now, what does this look like in the mind of a believer? Let's answer this question, and then we'll pray. Turn to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul had what would be considered a successful and fruitful life before Christ knocked him off his donkey. I don't know about you. Praise God, he's knocked me off my donkey. Look at verse 7. I'm going to read this quickly. Pay attention. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of who? Christ. Why? Because he's my life. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Stop. Wasn't Paul already saved when he wrote this? Notice he's talking about more and more and more, more of Christ. He already knows Paul thoroughly, yes? At this time, does Paul know Jesus thoroughly? No, but he wants to know him more and more, and it's an insatiable desire that must be fulfilled. Look what it says here, verse 9. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. In other words, the flesh isn't going to work in this situation to gain more of Christ. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And that's practical righteousness, living it out. And here it is, verse 10, that I may gnosko him, that I may experience him that I may not just know what the Bible tells me is facts, and I may not just know that he lives down the street, but that I may know him intimately so that he overflows out of my life. And if we were to have a Sunday night testimony meeting, I'd have no problem taking up the floor because I can't stop speaking about the goodness of God in revealing himself in and around me. That's the idea that I may experientially know him deeper. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, the koinonia, the joint participation of his sufferings. Does that mean bad things might happen in my life? Yes, they might. Why? Because he is bringing you to an experiential knowledge of himself and his son being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the, what's this word? It's an extremely interesting word. Let me share with you real quick. Whenever you deal with the word resurrection throughout scripture, it is always the word anastasis in the Greek, okay? Over and over and over. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. The idea is to raise up, to raise up. Anna is up, Stasis is to raise, okay, is the idea. But what's interesting about this word right here, resurrection in verse 11, it's the only time that this word is ever used in the New Testament. And it is the idea of ex anastasis, okay? Now it comes from ek at the beginning, which means out of. So out to rise up out of is the idea of this. This is a different type of resurrection. Now, I want you to pay attention to this, and let's read it again with that understanding so I can explain it. Verse 11, in order that I may attain, notice it's something that Paul desires to move forward to, it's a goal, to the resurrection from the dead. There will be a time when the trumpet sounds and all believers in Christ are raised up at the same time. We call this the rapture. But there's something that takes place in the midst of this resurrection that while believers in Christ are being raised up, this ek at the beginning of it changes the perspective of that. It's something different than the gift. It's part and parcel of the prize when it comes to fruition. It's the idea of not just being raised up, but coming out of that resurrection. It's something more. It's not just resurrection, it is fully experiencing everything that that resurrection has to offer. Paul knows it's there, and Paul knows that the way 
to reach that, that is the prize, is by a deeper, fuller, experiential knowledge of walking with Jesus Christ. How do we know that that's what that is for sure? Watch what it says, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, mature is what it means in his faith, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting your past. Everybody got that? Because often what keeps us for living with Christ and experiencing Christ is our past. We let the enemy dig up our past and chuck it in our faces. And it renders us paralyzed and we forget the truths of Scripture. Notice, where am I at? Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. What's future? What he's promised. The glories of the prize of eternal life being fully and amazingly satisfied because it's lavished on you by his grace. Look what it says here. I press on toward the goal for thee. What's the word? The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Are you experiencing God? Are you experiencing Jesus? Have you asked him to draw near? Are you happy living your life now the way that it is? Or do you know that it needs to change? Because I will tell you this, I can point you in the right direction. Experientially knowing his son and the father. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us as a body of believers that you have purposely fit together to do your good works. Touch our hearts. Help us answer the question, are we experiencing you? Do we see your handiwork throughout our lives? Do we live each day in anticipation of where you want to lead us? Or have we grown sinfully accustomed to squeezing you into where you fit and what we've already planned? Father, we thank you for the quantity of eternal life. But Lord, I pray that we would crave after the quality of eternal life that we would consider all things lost, that we may gain you, that we would recognize that the things that consume our attention are not important, that the things we want to accomplish are inconsequential because you have infinitely better already prepared for every one of us. Father, if that's not the desire of our hearts this morning, we need to be changed. We need to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of our sin and your righteousness and judgment. Father, we pray all this in the name of Christ, who is the difference maker. Amen.